0: Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 13, A Study of Classroom Music Teachers, with me.
1: Hello and welcome back to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. And today we've got kind of a special episode in that it's kind of unique at the moment. We don't very often do our episodes flying solo. We have done one, I think, this year. We thought we ought to bring something to, to the table that is from our own brains and uh, and hard work rather than showcasing the hard, hard work of others. And today it's Tom's turn. Tom has, as we've said many a time on this podcast, and indeed we've had an episode um, I think last season maybe the season before gosh we've been doing this for a long time can't remember can't remember but we've 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 caught up with tom um along his his path his journey to doctorate and um it is within grasping distance now tom has just submitted uh, his Corrections. He's been through his viva, so we thought it best that we talk about the thesis, take a deep dive into it. Tom, how are you feeling about uh, the prospect of these corrections getting you over the line?
0: Well, uh, yeah, hoping that they're going to be acceptable. Just uh, for context, it's first thing on Monday morning, and I sent them yesterday afternoon, so that's that's how hot off the press those are. But yes, a little bit of therapy after the viva wouldn't go amiss, to be honest.
1: (laughs) Yeah, here it was, um, it was it was not an easy ride <laughs> and and for for anybody I, I th- well I think you spoke to Sally Bethel about about vivas and and how they go but um how was it for you that viva
0: hard yeah I would, I would describe it as hard but fair I think is probably the the best way I would put it I did have uh I had two lovely Viva examiners, two of the nicest people in the business. Um, but they, yeah, they didn't go easy on me. To be fair, um, nothing, nothing was unfair or mean. But it was a pretty hard. What was it? About fifty minutes, I think, in the end, which I think is is a short one. But yeah, it I was think you just
1: so had to hard. go and lie down afterwards, didn't I you? I pretty remember?
0: much wanted to go to sleep afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> I was absolutely <laughs> worn out. I couldn't believe. I think I rang you up actually, and and I looked at my watch and I said, I can't believe it's half past two in the afternoon because it feels like about half past six.
1: Well, I haven't planned any nasty questions today, that- um, and I, I plan to give you a nice gentle ride. I have. Had I think it would be wrong to say I have read the entire thesis since it is about 270-odd pages of gold. However, I have had a good look through it and read some really interesting um, sections that has helped me to prepare some questions. We ought to let everybody know that um, the title of this work is A Study of Key Stage 3 Music Teachers' Pedagogic Beliefs in the Context of a New Curriculum for Wales. And I note from the thesis that you make a really clear case for a pragmatic approach to research and education where the problem becomes before the approach. So, Tom, just remind our listeners who perhaps haven't listened to that other episode that we did about your, your, your PhD, what was um, the professional or academic itch at the heart of your thesis?
0: Well, OK, because doing a PhD, I suppose it's not quite as necessary as, for example, in Sally's EDD or your EDD um, to kind of have some sort of output that is is to do with kind of professional usefulness. In fact my director of studies uh, professor gary beecham was very frequently early on telling me stop worrying about you know whether this is going to be useful and just concentrate on the generation of new knowledge but being a an ex-classroom teacher i think and a practical kind of uh, soul i did want to do something useful and i did want to do something that was going to make my job a little bit more um well informed perhaps and so yes i the the title kind of explains what i was aiming to do but but not necessarily the why we are as we've mentioned about eight million, bazillion times on this podcast at a time of major curriculum reform in Wales. We've got the new curriculum coming in. In fact, it's in. Uh, People are trying to make sense of it on the ground now, and I felt it was important at that point To get a bit of a snapshot, really, of what those teachers who are music specialists working in the compulsory end of secondary for music, which is ages eleven to fourteen, what they believed about the teaching of music, what were they doing it for, what were they trying to achieve, how did they feel they should go about it, Um, partly as a means of looking forward and trying to make sense of where we were going, but also doing so having taken stock of some of the weirdo baggage that the subject of classroom music tends to carry around with it.
1: Mm -hmm. So quite ambitious. um, And uh, kind of what I noticed in the questions was there was sort of a focus on the individual. We can see that in the title, the pedagogic beliefs. But also, I think you were interested in sort of the interplay um, that... uh, Dr. Judith Neen talked about in one of her earlier episodes about the sort of micro, the individual level, the meso level, that sort of how things were playing out in the context of the classroom, what was going on in schools, but then also, as you just said, this sort of bigger picture of, of curriculum reform and um, it seems that it was quite important to you to capture those different aspects of your work. So so what were the different facets of this study that were really important to you? Were there any sort of key questions that you were trying to to ask to get answers to?
0: Yeah, I mean there was one big main one which was basically to put it in kind of normal language, what do key stage 3 classroom music teachers actually believe about the teaching of music in the time and place that we are now so in the in the context of a new curriculum coming in so that was my sort of biggest question and so I set that out as my third research question and then I kind of had these little staging posts on the way really one of which was um, what does the what is the impact of the context in which they're working, because we kind of know about the whole subsidiarity thing in Wales, this idea that, that uh, curriculum needs to be locally relevant and kind of co-constructed in context. So I thought that was, that was a sort of topical one to have a look at. And then I wanted to have a look at background as well, and that's a kind of music-specific one. And you'll remember when we had Dr Vivon talking about her thesis. There is this whole kind of weird... Baggagey thing in in the world of music education where a lot of music teachers tend to be come from a particular background and that's a a western classically trained background and there's been loads of literature over decades about the fact there's a little bit of a kind of gap then that opens up between music teachers whose values are based in the western classical tradition and pupils whose values tend to be more based either in a kind of pop music sort of tradition or alternatively the uh the traditions of the cultures from which those pupils come if, if they've come from from kind of other parts of the world so I wanted to dig into that as well because I had a hunch that was probably still going to be something that was relevant.
1: Yeah I want to dig into that actually because I was struck by a line in your literature review which reads those who teach classroom music are not neutral players um, and I just wondered if you could sort of go some way to unpick the importance of this for teachers listening because I think that extends not only to music teachers but all teachers so what what have you learned about the things that influence the identity and habits of classroom music teachers?
0: Well yeah I mean nobody's a neutral player in this stuff and actually that was a kind of multi-leveled thing in my research because of course I'm not a neutral player either I'm an ex-classroom teacher I'm somebody who teachers the next generation of classroom music teachers I'm a musician myself I mean Viv talked about this really interestingly in her episode the fact that we've all got our kind of background and our baggage and so I'm not a neutral player but yeah I mean no teacher kind of goes into the classroom as this this blank canvas I suppose they don't go in as this completely neutral entity and so it was interesting to speak to my my classroom music teachers I mean I did a, a Survey, I got 75 responses back, and then there were nine people that were kind enough to actually sit down and have a discussion with me for up to an hour each. And yeah, most of them had come from a classically uh, trained background. Which didn't surprise me at all. I mean, most of the ones in the survey and pretty much I think all of the ones that I interviewed had a classical background. You'll know that when we've done sessions on the PGC where music and drama have come together, I often do this kind of thing for the benefit of all the other subjects where I ask my lot to do a show of hands as to who considers themselves to be trained in the Western classical tradition. I don't think we've ever yet not had every hand go up in the group, which is kind of... Interesting. I don't really know what the case would be for other subject disciplines, whether there is that kind of very similar background thing going on or whether you have people in other subjects, you know, a bit more of a mix, but... Yeah, music teachers tend to be classically trained, and that tends to imply a certain way of working, um, and, and we know Dr Viv talked about that, you know, a certain way of being taught, a certain way of experiencing your musical education, and, and also a certain things being considered important, so a certain value set, and, and it, it's about doing a really good interpretation of the composer's wishes the idea that stuff is quite sort of um, set down on paper I suppose in, in old, old school ways of thinking that you are trying to interpret a thing that has been set down by a composer and ways of actually presenting that work as well of the fact that you you kind of get up and you you perform and a load of people listen very politely and clap at the end of it and that before you did that performance you were kind of closeted away by yourself or in a small group rehearsing and practicing and kind of sweating in over the details by yourself before you then present this sort of finished product and there was loads of that evident in what the teachers were saying although to be fair to the teachers as well there was a very strong thread evident in the fact that once they actually landed in the classroom very early on they'd realized that that set of values and beliefs about music was not really sufficient to reach the pupils or to do right by the pupils and that they had gone on a a very quick and quite significant journey in terms of changing the way that they thought about music and the way that they used their skills in order that they could do right by the pupils and that was quite contradictory to some aspects of the non-music specific literature which tends to suggest that the way that you experience the subject late on you know at degree level tends to really impact your values about how it should be taught so there was a strong thread about teachers having transcended that quite early on mainly you know it has to be said through necessity of of realizing that stuff just wasn't going to land otherwise. Mm.
1: Speaking about necessity and speaking about you know bringing it back in into context now when they find themselves in a key stage three uh, music department. I'm maybe speaking about the more experienced teachers now. What will they have been used to for the 11 to 14 age range in in terms of the outgoing music curriculum? And what new offer was being made to music teachers through the the introduction of the curriculum for Wales? Well, I mean, it's really
0: kind of easy to characterise the old music curriculum or the old national curriculum as being very prescriptive. And actually, it wasn't, to be fair. The national curriculum for music in Wales was really not very prescriptive at all. And it was always a big surprise moment when I was working with the PGCEs to show them the curriculum for the whole of age 11 to 14, as it was set out in, well, most recently in 2008 and find that it was just two sides of A4. It's a list of skills, a list of musical skills, things like, you know, to, to hold a part in a, in a part song or in an in a instrumental piece, to perform music by ear, to you know, improve your compositions, that kind of thing. It was only a list of skills. There was absolutely no suggestion of lists of pieces or lists of styles or genres or anything like that. That was all very much left open to interpretation. So teachers were interpreting the curriculum already pre the new curriculum because they didn't have lists of pieces of music there wasn't a canon uh, and it very specifically said they needed to range very widely of course there were canons being created and there were ways being created in folk pedagogies as I've probably talked about at other points there were things that everybody tended to do like doing the blues and that sort of thing and nobody ever quite knew why in terms of what was new in the new curriculum I mean, I would say in a in a funny sort of way, from a disciplinary sort of perspective, from a subject perspective, it really dialed down the level of detail even further. I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of detail in the older curriculum, but at least there was a coherent list of musical skills. But the new curriculum kind of as it's set out in terms of expressive arts as an area of learning and experience is talking at a kind of higher level about the arts in general. And you have to dig really far down into the curriculum documents to find anything specific to the subject of music. And all you get is kind of three bullet points, which we could we could have a really interesting discussion about that if we were we were so inclined, but it's possibly not all you need to put together a curriculum for music. I suppose the big headline thing was this idea that you were going to break down the boundaries between subject disciplines and work across between music, drama, art and design film and digital media and dance and that was the thing I think that was grabbing people and so part of the research involved asking them what they were making of that and how they were finding their way through that because as we've kind of hinted at in the past or discussed in the past there's a bit of a suspicion that perhaps people are jumping in with both feet there and trying stuff out but not necessarily considering what the downsides might be so there was a kind of little bonus area there for consideration.
1: And it seems that um, with some of the questions that you were asking um, in the questionnaires, in your interviews, we're trying to dig into what music teachers perceived the subject to be for. There were some interesting binaries that you were maybe asking them to explore as to whether the ultimate aim of music education is to produce pupils who are able to access GCSE and A-level qualifications and be able to sort of become musicians with maybe within that sort of western classical tradition you didn't specifically say that but that that seemed to be implied or was music you know a more sort of holistic developmental offer one that all pupils should be able to in some way benefit from for them to be able to appreciate to be able to enjoy make you know just to have a a much broader accessibility it seemed like the teachers, from your perspective, were were having to do sort of two things, have, having to sort of make sure they had post-14 and post-16 pupils signing up for the longer term goals, but then also to make sure that everybody could get something from music. So it seems like there's some competing interests there. What did you find when you started to explore this with the teachers?
0: Yeah, now this was very, very kind of complex. And so feel free to boot me one under the table if I go on too long on this one but this was kind of the crux of it really is is what did they see the subject as being for and there's loads of literature about this and there's probably loads of anecdotal stuff about this there's a guy called uh, Thomas Rogelski a North American writer who coined the term musicianism to describe this the idea that music teachers got so kind of fixated on the quality of the musical outputs that they kind of lost sight of what was right for the pupils and it kind of a classic example of that is these people you get who wander about in their adult life saying oh I'm tone deaf I was told I was tone deaf at school I was told to sit at the back and mouth the words in school choir because I was not in tune and all that sort of thing the idea that you would you would say that sort of stuff to pupils or you know sing it really quietly because you're terrible at singing because you were more interested in the quality of the musical outputs than whether you were kind of doing damage to the pupils and so I really wanted to dig into that and see whether that was still going on or whether kind of conversely we had another problem which was set out by Chris Philpot in, in a chapter in the book debates in music teaching, was that we were kind of being too soft in our justifications for the subject. We were kind of going all fluffy and huggy and saying, oh, music is good for you and it's good for people's well-being and that's why we do it. And there's kind of a whole other set of dangers in that, which is that we we kind of claim things for music that are a little bit broad brush and perhaps not always kind of supported by the evidence i, I love that philpot chapter actually he goes on to give loads of examples in which music can be thoroughly not good for us and he also sets out this warning that if we just define music as being something we should have on the curriculum because it's it's good for people then people can kind of say well you know here are a load of other things that are good for people on your bike you know you're too expensive and you don't have enough pupils so i really wanted to look into this um and i found that yeah there were a number of of kind of desired outcomes being expressed by the music teachers there were some really hard-headed pragmatic ones as you say the idea that they need to get some bums on seats as you theatrical types tend to put it at uh, post 14 and post 16 because if you don't have them enough bums on enough seats then your subject isn't going to run um, and, and obviously they wanted some decent grades coming out of those pupils as well because at secondary were all judged by our results at the end of, of terminal exams at uh, 16 and 18 and so there was a really hard-headed pragmatic thing they had their eye on that on enough people taking the subject and them doing well interestingly they they didn't sort of see those as being incompatible with some more high-minded sort of outcomes things like broadening the pupils horizons in terms of their musical kind of knowledge and experience there was one teacher that kind of suggested that if they didn't do that the kids were going to exist on a diet of sort of Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift for their whole lives and that kind of thing and but they, they saw that as, as being a really important thing and and interestingly and contradicting this whole Rogelski thing about musical outcomes they actually seemed far more interested in in setting up the pupils with a kind of transferable creativity so the ability to be creative to develop their uh, creative skills in ways that they would be able to transfer beyond music and what they were probably doing there is acknowledging the fact that the vast vast majority of pupils don't go on to study music and so they were trying to set them up with something something useful for the rest of their lives this sort of transferable creativity and just a kind of generally good feeling about music as a thing which is great and lovely and very pragmatic although I did kind of sound a note of caution in the thesis about the fact that if we are just setting ourselves up as a subject that provides pupils with general transferable creativity I think one of my interviews referred to kind of civilized (laughs) kind of (laughs) civilized people you know turning them out at the end well, there's a lot of subjects that would lay claim to that and, and we do sort of lose our specialness there. We we start inviting questions about how expensive we are and how few pupils we actually cater for post-14 and in a new curriculum where perhaps all bets are off about how many hours we get a, a term, that could be a little bit of a dangerous game if we just kind of dive into that very general creativity pool as our reason for being.
1: Yeah, so I I, I thought you'd put that quite Succinctly, Tom. Actually, <laughs> and it's very, very interesting when, when all bets are off. You know, and and you have to decide like, who are we and what are we for because curriculum for Wales doesn't guarantee us um, status as an individual subject um, in the curriculum for Wales, and we we're not going to dwell too much on that because we talked about it a lot on this podcast. Um, but now I want to sort of explore the 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 how of teaching, the the pedagogic beliefs, what they they found to be sort of significant approaches to teaching music in the classroom, and something that came up that really struck me. In, in your abstract it's it's sort of um, throughout the 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 assignment the, the thesis we mark marking assignments <laughs> lately marking, yeah. <laughs> was this idea of the illusion of freedom music teachers create in the classroom it, st- it stood out for me as a significant finding was it and can you explain what this means in the context of your research
0: yes this was really interesting actually I was trying to get to the bottom of what was actually going on in the key state tree music classroom i found this really nice little um term in a, an article by one of my supervisors actually when she was she was talking about change the process of change she's a change management kind of person from the school of management and um, the black box it was and, and i was thinking oh yeah that's such a great name for the the classroom because of course we go in there we, we often say as teachers don't we oh yeah we go in we close our door and there were the pupils and everything's great so when you when you open the door, and go out and deal with all the rest of it. That the job is a bit of a pain, and you are in the black box, and stuff is going on, change is happening, pupils are hopefully learning, things are happening, and I was trying to uncover what was going on in this mysterious environment. And yeah, I ended up with with this kind of weird graphical model, which I think we'll try and link to in the show notes if people want to have a look at it. Which represents what teachers perceived to be happening inside their classroom and also what was kind of filtering in from the outside of their classroom And in terms of what they were trying to achieve, I mean, I mentioned these outcomes, these kind of transferable creativities and bums on seats and all that kind of thing. I mean, weirdly, the mastery of musical skills, which you would think would be quite an important outcome for music teachers, was this sort of intermediate outcome that they were looking for. They were looking to get the pupils to master musical skills on the way to those kind of bigger outcomes that I talked about a minute ago. And as part of that, they saw themselves as giving pupils the tools, the building blocks, the musical kind of bits that they could put together in order to do this. They were trying to create a, a culture in the classroom, an ethos which would allow pupils to experiment and be creative and fail and go down in flames and it would all be okay and to present their creative work in a supportive environment. And this was all really interesting, you know, that they were were powering this process with a a bunch of strategies and things and and resources. But what kind of came out was this this question about to what extent were these teachers um, giving these pupils genuine agency and freedom and artistic kind of space? Because that was one of the things they said they were trying to do. They were trying to give the pupils the ability to develop artistically independently of them they were that's what they were aiming for it was this kind of uh, incremental process by which the pupils became more independent of the teacher the teacher fed in stuff and supported them and then kind of took the support away which is kind of classic teacher thing but there was this little sort of implied or sometimes quite explicit doubt kind of creeping in as to whether this was real or whether they were giving as one of the teachers actually said the illusion of choice the illusion of freedom. And um, and yeah, I mean I didn't kind of I didn't kind of answer that question in in black and white terms, but I thought that was really important because that was chiming with a lot of earlier literature including by Ruth Wright, my one of my external examiners, about the fact that often teachers believe themselves to be giving pupils all this kind of artistic freedom but often the boundaries are there, whether they're visible or not. And then there's this kind of open question about well, is that a good thing? Is that not such a good thing? Some of them were making the point well, if you do give them complete freedom, they're just going to go down in flames and get totally turned off the subject. They need the help of a more experienced teacher to kind of help them create something that feels like the sort of music that they're wanting to create. And so, within this sort of engine room, that the teachers were kind of creating in the classroom, there was this funny little thing kind of hanging over it all as to whether the pupils were getting genuine artistic freedom or not.
1: And... Coming back to the context of Curriculum for Wales and, and looking more closely at your conceptual model of key stage stream music teachers, pedagogical beliefs, I'm wondering if there are any aspects of the Curriculum for Wales that have either brought to the fore, sharpened um, or sort of in, introduced something new to the way that music teachers are working in the classroom, their beliefs about music pedagogy. I noticed these powering factors that you've got in your uh, within the black box. So stuff that is going on in the classroom. And we've got things like real world contexts. We've got things like music technology, music industry. We know that there's a lot of emphasis on authentic context for learning in the curriculum for Wales. So I just wondered if it came out in your research, how the curriculum for Wales was influencing changing um what was going on pedagogically in the music classroom
0: yeah I mean this wasn't a sort of massively central thing in what I was looking at but it did come out in several cases when I was talking to people and that was another big thing of the curriculum for Wales is this idea that we should provide pupils with kind of authentic contexts for learning and in music that's Tended to manifest itself, itself in terms of talking about the music industry, so film music composers, songwriters, that kind of thing, and music technology being a way of kind of making that a little bit more real. I mean, one of my interviews was talking about all sorts of interesting things about using audio software to kind of look at how how people do sort of forensic audio work and stuff like that he had all kinds of really interesting and exciting ideas and yeah that was a kind of powering factor that was a thing that the teachers were using as a thing to feed into the learning process to make it more relevant and that's been a bit of a battle for many years in the music classroom which is that you know as classically trained people we tend to work in a very abstract way we tend to compose you know with with manuscript paper and pencils back in my day or with with the music software equipment. And you will get people who kind of almost in a little Freudian slip talk about writing a composition, which, of course, is what you do in the classical world. You literally write it down on those five horizontal lines on the page. But actually, somebody working in a more pop music background or music production background would be doing things on a screen with blocks and faders and buttons and things like that. And so, yes, that that was a thing in the new curriculum that was very much being embraced as a way of making music accessible and interesting, and motivating, and also kind of making outward connections to things other than those music careers associated with the Western classical tradition, like being a performer or being a composer. So it was it was a useful, powering factor for kind of making things more interesting and exciting in the classroom. Yeah,
1: and just one final question on on what you found um, before we just go into just a little bit of different territory. Um, What about the finding shocked, surprised or made you think differently about music education?
0: Ooh, that's an interesting question. I think I I don't think there were any sort of huge, huge major shocks for me, because as I said before, I'm a kind of a, a bit of an insider, and that was that was a whole interesting thing in itself that I had to try and try and remove myself from being an insider. I, I think I was probably a little bit worried more than shocked or surprised actually, because I felt that there were that there was a tendency to be kind of heading towards some potentially dangerous territory through being a little bit starry-eyed or a bit overexcited about certain aspects of the curriculum um, I, I, again this idea that we we just sort of mash subjects together without thinking it through was a bit of a worry I think this this question about what we're for as a subject I think there's some very dangerous territory there in terms of coming out with really glib justifications for the subject based around kind of fluffy stuff about well-being or or general sort of creativity. I think we we are in danger of selling ourselves short as a subject. If we do that, I think we're in danger of getting ourselves into a, a kind of dangerous place where the subject just ends up getting either watered down or sort of marginalized, almost out of existence by being too glib about that stuff. And so I think probably in in terms of the processes of music learning, um I was I was pleasantly surprised in a way that that there was so little evidence of that elitist tendency, although that illusion of choice thing was perhaps a little bit of a a bit of a kind of background cloud there. That was kind of quite nice to see. I was quite quite pleasantly surprised at how quickly music teachers had adapted from their own backgrounds because i thought that contradicted the literature and then yeah on the on the debit side i think i was just worried that perhaps music teachers were not as alive as they ought to be uh to the potential dangers to the subject when we're we're looking at a a very detailed light curriculum framework at the moment a, a serious crisis I would say of recruitment into subject specific secondary disciplines and the fact that you know you could solve the second problem with the first if you were not extremely careful so I think that's probably my takeaway for for the profession on the ground really.
1: Uh, Okay so sticking with that then obviously you've produced this conceptual framework this model that is is potentially very useful because it's a thing a stimulus for for conversation so how are you hoping that might be used and to what end
0: yeah that's an interesting question because I mean I guess on the one hand it's not kind of necessary that it is used in the same way as it, it would be for an eddie you know I could if I wanted to just publish several really wordy articles that almost nobody's going to read about this stuff and everyone will go very nice well done but of course that's not the way I roll and um, being as I am in the teaching profession um I, I think it would be interesting to get together with music teachers and discuss the model and kind of say do you recognize this And then kind of pull out some of these discussion points and say, well, you know, do you recognise these potentially good things? Do you recognise these potentially slightly threatening things? I think that could be really useful as um, discipline specialists try and navigate their way into implementing the new curriculum because I do really worry that there are decisions being made that perhaps are not the best decisions. I'm not saying they're being made for bad reasons. I think they're often being made for quite pragmatic reasons but I just think there is a lack of input into those discussions and I think this could provide a useful input. I mean, it'd be also quite interesting to speak to people from outside the music discipline and see how much they recognise this. I don't know how applicable it would be. There's a lot of music-specific baggage in there, but it might be that perhaps some of the other subjects might find similar conversations interesting. So I'd be very much up for that. I'm not kind of obliged to create... Professional learning stuff out of it in the same way as D people are. I'm mostly obliged to write some journal articles now and get myself published and get get moving on it. But I I think I would like to do that, and I'd like to have the opportunity to do that because I think it could be useful.
1: I'm sure it will be, and certainly I found it very interesting looking at it from a sort of a, an adjacent expressive arts <laughs> disciplinary yeah. perspective. You know, it was useful to me to see where we are similar and where we we are very different. Um, I don't want to go too deep down a rabbit hole on this, but I feel like it is my duty to ask these questions because I know that a particularly... challenging part of this PhD for you was the whole sociology aspect. I think you knew going into it that sociology would have to play a role um, in your understanding and sense making of it and to sort of quote Professor Ruth Wright who externally examined your PhD from across the Atlantic, the sociological right water in which you swim is important for you to sort of be aware of. So what sociologists and theories were most influential and why?
0: Yeah now this is where I did come quite a stuck in my viva to be fair i should i should put my hand up and say this and that was because i think i hinted at this actually when we were talking about my doctoral research in progress a little while back it's an enormous rabbit hole whole careers glorious careers have been made kind of looking into this stuff not not least professor ruth Wright's actually and i was really trying to strike a balance between getting this thing done (laughs) and not you know accidentally becoming a sociology expert along the way and I I think realistically I probably got the balance slightly wrong and I probably wimped out of a few things on the sociological side and that's why I've been doing corrections because Ruth Wright kind of said no you don't you've got to actually go and <laughs> go and <laughs> dig into that stuff properly if you're going to get examined by me and so I've had to go and look into it but yes that this kind of goes back also to this fact that I am a bit of an insider here. I'm an ex classroom music teacher. I'm a musician. All the people I was speaking to were classroom music teachers talking about the thing that they do absolutely every day and which is kind of automatic to them a lot of it and if they think about this stuff it's at a very sort of implicit level and so yes the discipline of sociology as Ruth Wright puts it in one of her things is is this way of a fish becoming aware of the water in which it swims as in you have to step back several steps and look at a thing that you are normally inside uh, and don't kind of feel aware of on a day to day basis and it it was an important set of tools to help me do that and to help me frame some really kind of knotty questions. Um, for my my participants in a way that was informed by research and it was kind of quite gratifying to hear them sort of going oh gosh this is a horrible question when I was asking it which suggested I perhaps gone down the right route there I looked at uh, Bourdieu as Viv did and Viv did a, a brilliant explanation of kind of Bourdieu's stuff uh, in a previous episode actually one of the main ones for me was Basil Bernstein who I think I talked about at Christmas his stuff was very very interesting I also looked at the work and again I've only seen his, his name in print so I've got a horrible feeling I'm pronouncing his name wrong Carl Maton or Carl Matten. he he's a, a, a sociologist who's worked in the field of education as well so I kind of mashed together their theories and my excuse <laughs> for not <laughs> becoming a sociology expert was I was trying to use these theories as kind of framing devices for questions um, but actually the more and more you dig into them the more and more they appear to be relevant to what we're doing in the curriculum they set out how we do things why we do things what going on when we're dealing with knowledge and learning and also crucially power dynamics because those are going on in the classroom all the time these sort of established power dynamics they're in the classroom they're impacting on the classroom I'm kind of a product of them as well and there's a kind of dynamic going on there when I'm trying to work out what's going on in the classroom and so you need a way of Kind of setting this stuff out and becoming aware of this stuff. And that was where I used the discipline of sociology. And I would definitely urge anybody that's looking into this stuff to look at these things. They are hard to wrap your head around, is the only health warning I would give. Uh, It's really quite tricky stuff.
1: (laughs) But I think that's what's useful about your PhD thesis is that you can see your thought process, how you use them to, as you said, come up with some interesting questions, to interpret what you were. Leaning from um, the data that you would gathered, so I would agree with you. I think it's important to um, to have a look at those and to chew them over with people that uh, are going to are going to do it in a respectful and caring manner. <laughs> um, I, I, you're going to hate this question, Hello. but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. Um, I, I couldn't fail to notice that uh, one of your corrections was a big chunky section calling for you to be reflexive at the end of the project, um, which is about sort of taking account of of yourself and the effect of personality or presence of the researcher on what is being investigated and so just a simple question what have you learned about yourself from this process?
0: Yeah this is an awkward moment because yes I produced a reflexive statement for the start of my thesis and just to kind of explain what one of those is um, it's this idea that when we are doing education research what we're not doing is sort of floating above trying to find some objective truth, you know, that sort of scientific view that you go and you measure stuff and, you you know, you don't disturb it. And then you just kind of say what it is. You can't do that in education because it's so messy and it's so multifaceted and it's about people's perceptions of what's going on. And then when you step back, I've got my own backstory and my own values um, and my own perceptions of things, and so one way that you get around this this problem that, oh, it's not really a problem, but there's just the nature of what we're doing, being quite subjective. Uh, some people have suggested that you have to sort of before you start set out your own stool about yourself so that the reader can read what you have found through the lens of who you are and you know uh, to use a kind of favorite term of the moment your lived experience (laughs) and yes this was a pretty uncomfortable experience for me not because I've had a particularly interesting lived experience but because I just ate talking about myself (laughs) I really don't like it and so I I sat down, I remember one day, and just kind of banged out this statement really kind of as quickly as I could, and then ran away from it about my own musical training, uh, all the way from the age of six, when I started learning to be a musician, and all the way through my kind of professional experience as a musician, my own educational experiences, and then my experiences as a teacher. I mean, you probably had a read of that and found out some stuff about me that you didn't know, I should imagine. (laughs)
1: most of it but it was just really interesting to sort of see it laid down chronologically and to sort of plot the major things I mean particularly the things that you said about how your school music education didn't do anywhere near as much for you in fact you you you're quite scathing about it if I may say so um as as what you were doing down the road in your local church you know it was it it was a completely different education you were getting there that you seemed to sort of hold up as being more influential
0: yeah it kind of was and it, it was it was more influential not because necessarily it was that sort of western classical based thing but actually in a funny sort of way it was so pragmatic in the way it went about things because yeah I sang in a church choir from when I was very very young and um, uh, it was like every Sunday you had to have some music ready (laughs) was the kind of basics of it and so you just had to be you know not too worried about about the kind of niceties of it you just had to throw some music out there every Sunday and I think that was very influential and actually that's very much how the professional world works as well and so just getting very early into that idea of just getting stuff out and stuff being you know, good enough to stand up and do on a Sunday and next Sunday there'd be another one, I think was a very influential thing. on I me, and actually quite useful for becoming a teacher as well, because one of the things our teachers struggle with when they start is this kind of perfectionism that comes from a Western classical training. This idea that you practice and practice and practice for ages before you put a concert on actually is not realistic to be that much of a perfectionist in in the classroom and so that was kind of useful i was i was well on the way to saying that'll do uh, before i i even became a teacher but you're right yeah it, it was it was interesting to set it out but what they said in my viva was that it was all well and good to set that out at the start but i also needed to do the same thing later on having actually done the research and so as part of my corrections I had to sit down and do another one of the thing that I'd least liked doing mm-hmm. <laughs> during the process of writing my uh, my my PhD and as I started writing the thing I actually did come across some interesting stuff for my own reflections so they were right they, they did need to get me to do that and again I looked at it as a learner and, and as a teacher like I had earlier on but uh, as a learner now I was thinking as a PhD student type of learner as opposed to a a classroom music learner. Um, And I learned loads of interesting stuff there about the fact that I'd really not seen myself in this kind of academic light when I started working in ITE. I remember people saying to me, you need to start reading literature, and I remember thinking, well, where should I start? You know, what should I read? And I'd really not seen myself as being that kind of academic person so this has helped i mean it's been a bit of a bit of a harsh way to get a grounding in education research because as i as i say in the thing i didn't do a master's in education so this is my first go at doing education research doing a phd which i, I wouldn't recommend to anybody <laughs> as, a, as a way of getting into the <laughs> the field but you know it's it's worked and it's been interesting um as a teacher then um i, I was thinking about the fact that well i came out of the classroom to become a pgc lecturer and nobody tells you how to find your niche no longer can you be that sort of subject mentor person that gives tips and tricks on how to do behavior management or something like that you can but it's not as effective because you're not there in the classroom you can't demonstrate you haven't got classes on tap and there's a subject mentor that can do that better And so in trying to find my little niche in terms of what I can give to my students, this has been quite helpful looking back on that and the kind of journey, if that's not an awful (laughs) cliched word to use, that I've gone from being a classroom teacher to becoming a PGCE type of teacher. That's been very interesting as well. So painful, though, it was to have to sit down and yet again write a chunk of text all about me, me, me it was worth doing because it's brought that stuff into focus and it's just kind of proved to me that this thing was really worth doing all along.
1: Yeah, and I think something that you've always said throughout this whole process is that the important thing, even though you did go the PhD route, it has always been important to you to make things sort of translatable to, useful to the people who you're working with directly and indirectly. So, you know, it's good to hear that 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 is very much sort of front and centre of your philosophy.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I didn't pick the EDD, uh, not because I didn't want to be doing useful stuff, but just because I didn't like the idea of being in a cohort and having to do kind of social stuff and stuff like that, because I'm (laughs) deeply antisocial. I like to go off and do my own thing. I just, I prefer to be told, here's a big thing, off you go and do it, than be sort of helped along the way and told to do things in particular orders. I think for all that the PhD is supposed to be about, just generating new knowledge, I'm not going to just walk away at that point because I think there are things to share and I I would like to do that because that's just kind of the way we roll as teachers as as I said earlier.
1: Well I congratulate you my friend. Thank you. You have almost made it to the finishing line and I have every faith that you will (laughs) traverse that stage in the Wales Millennium Centre in July and uh, yeah and shake hands with the With the VC.
0: The VC, I'm going to get to do it both ways round because I'll get to read out all my own students' names and watch them walk across and then I have to kind of join the back of the queue I guess
1: uh, it's a funny old world isn't it so I have every faith in you good luck with the um, getting those corrections over the line you've done your bit now so it's in the lap of the gods literally now isn't it it's there yes. it's landed
0: the godlike figures
1: yes the godlike figures okay so you know what comes next you don't homework. need me to tell you
0: Nope, no the homework slots right do I get to pick my order that'd be nice I, I
1: will let you do that oh,
0: thank you very much right Well, as part of my corrections, one of which was to go back and actually read some original writing by the likes of Bernstein and Bourdieu, and stop relying on people like Ruth Wright who'd done all the hard work for me, I came across uh, a piece of Basil Bernstein called On the Classification and Framing of Educational Knowledge. This was written in 1975 and that's interesting to me for two reasons. Firstly, because it is exactly 40 years before the publication of the successful futures report in mm. 2015 and secondly the fact that it actually almost gives us a shopping list of ways to deal with the idea of, of putting subject disciplines together so it's almost like when you read it it's almost like basil bernstein is anticipating the questions around curriculum for wales by 40 years which is a pretty darn impressive thing to do um, and in that article he talks about aspects of you know pure pupil versus teacher control over content and the direction of the learning and all that sort of thing, uh, gives us the concepts of classification of framing, which I found particularly useful when trying to articulate some of the knotty questions um, that I was asking of my participants. But it also literally gives a list of how to avoid, as he saw it, the pitfalls uh, inherent in an integrated approach to curriculum. And you know I find myself wondering has anybody involved in putting Curriculum for Wales together read it? Probably but I think we probably could all take a little bit of time and at least have a little skim read of On the Classification and Framing of Educational Knowledge by Basil Bernstein 1975.
1: Lovely and something for our listeners to try.
0: Well we didn't get to dig into this in any detail uh, as part of talking about this work but as I've sort of hinted at I did do a survey of my my participants and I did then carry on an interview and I had to come up with some questions to ask them and they are questions about their beliefs around how they teach music why they teach music what's going on in their classroom and I used the concepts of Bernstein in particular quite heavily to kind of articulate those questions and so I suppose for my something to try, I would encourage people to ask themselves the questions or variations of the questions that I ask my participants as part of the process of uh, coming to grips with with the new curriculum and how they actually go about doing that so just going to give you some examples of some of the questions that I asked and I I gave them a sort of continuum and they had to place themselves along the line you know at an extreme end or somewhere in the middle or you know wherever they wanted to go and I put things at either end like key stage three music lessons should mainly consist of formal teacher-led activities through to key stage three music lessons should mainly consist of informal pupil-led activities and I have a hunch that different Subjects are likely to be in different places along that continuum. Similarly, I had one that said at Key Stage 3, musical understanding should mostly be gained by pupils learning the underlying disciplinary building blocks that can be then be reused in different concept contexts, and then across to musical knowledge should mostly be gained by pupils exploring music in context through collaboration and, discussion. and then just one more I've got here. Um, key stage three pupils need me to provide the relevant subject knowledge. All the way across to key stage three pupils should be allowed to discover subject knowledge. I mean, those are kind of, I suppose, uh, extreme positions in arguments that rage in a really obnoxious way on edgy Twitter all the time. But actually, they are quite important. There's not necessarily one straight answer to them. Like I said, it might differ from subject to subject. Some of mine uh, told me that they felt it changed as pupils went through through their learning experiences. I mean, I would be more than happy to provide the questions from my questionnaire to anybody that likes to get in touch and ask, but I'm sure colleagues are entirely capable of coming up with their own. And those are the sorts of building blocks of what we do and why we do it that I think we need to be able to give a clear account of when we are actually entrusted with the process of designing as well as delivering our own curriculum.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's those discussions and our being able to articulate and find your way Through um, to sort of come up with an an answer or coherent response to those questions, that we're asking for space and time to do. Like it's those sorts of things that require space and time. So those are not easy. There are no easy answers to those questions. And and I would imagine when you were listening to the participants in your study find their way through to an answer, that was where the really interesting stuff was starting to come out. I can imagine the qualitative data you got from them talking their way through to whatever they arrived at as an answer between that continuum. was really interesting
0: yeah and a lot of them found it really quite hard as well because they were difficult questions i mean there's been lots of talk lately hasn't there from the minister downwards about the fact that we need more professional learning more high quality professional learning in order to support teachers as they put the new curriculum into place but i think it's important not to necessarily see that as we're going to give you a load of stuff because i think as you rightly say there needs to be that time and that space um, to talk this stuff through but then what you need is the support and the questions and the kind of structures and the models and going back to these sociologists you know they've done the hard thinking on this stuff and they've provided us with with the kind of basics of those models and then we need to take them take them and use them but you're right we need the time and the space and we need the structure and the models so that we can give a good account of ourselves with these things
1: here here okay well, that's it, Tom. Hopefully, that was significantly <laughs> less gruelling, taxing, sweat-inducing than your uh, your viver. It certainly
0: <laughs> was. I mean, I should clarify that Ruth Wright, Professor Ruth Wright, is one of the nicest people in the business. Uh, but I think she was she was being nice by not giving me an easy ride in my viver. I'm very thankful to Ruth um, for doing that, and to Ian Shirley as well from Edgehill University. But you're right; it was hard.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, very best of luck for the like, the final furlong, and uh, yeah. We'll uh, we'll be back in your ears in two weeks' time. Thanks, Tom.
0: You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Rather than thanking myself for taking part, which would just be weird, I'll say that if you'd like to know any more about my study, you can contact me, Thomas Breeze, on Twitter or tbreeze at cardiffmet.ac.uk. All inquiries welcome. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.